Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right, guys, welcome back to Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. With me, my trusted co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, everybody, Colin. What's up, everybody, Colin? Ooh, got some energy today. Yeah, damn right. I got some spunk, dude. I drank my coffee. It's not, it's not 7 o'clock in the morning, so you're not, you're not drained. Dude, I am drained, actually. I've been working really hard. Uh, like, I got four hours sleep the night before, and last night I got maybe five or six. So, yeah, it's... Uh, Crunch time. All right, you just popped up on a bunch of caffeine. That makes sense. I'm just excited to do the podcast, man. I'm stoked to hear what Anatoly has to say. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, we have, today we have Anatoly, the co-founder, CEO of Solana. Um, why don't we do the normal kickoff and let you introduce yourself. How'd you get started into the blockchain space? And then we'll from there, we'll move into kind of what Solana is and why it needs to exist. Um, hey, awesome, awesome to be here. Uh, so yeah, this is Anatoly, co-founder CEO of Solana, and uh, how I got started in this mess, I guess, is uh, around 2017, I had too much coffee, you know, it's up till four in the morning, and uh, I had this like fever dream of uh, encoding passage of time as data, so creating a, a data structure that represents time passing, which is kind of a weird thing if you think about it, it has some like kind of metaphysical ramifications, I think. Um, but what's cool about it is uh, it's, uh, you know, time is a foundational component to distributed systems. And at the time, um, Bitcoin was like at $70 per transaction or something like that. And everybody was talking about scaling blockchain. Um, and I, I had spent most of my career working at Qualcomm, which is a wireless uh, semiconductor firm. So I kind of am well aware of uh, how wireless networks, your cellular network scale to, you know, millions of participants. And uh, once I had a source of time, I was really kind of, I knew that I had something that could um, actually solve all these scaling problems. And uh, that's really what kickstarted the project. So with like, uh, what was your background in like the blockchain space prior to that? Or did you just like have a knowledge about it and have this sudden insight and decide to just jump into um, doing specifically blockchain work? So, I mean, I was an engineer, like, most of my life, basically, but um, spent most of my career at Qualcomm. I, like, worked on operating systems, some, you know, wireless protocols, yeah. a bunch of random things. And when Bitcoin uh, kind of came out, um, I was, like, well aware of it. And uh, they were, you know, I tried CPU mining, and they were kind of thinking, oh, what if we wrote a GPU-based version of this? We can get all the hash power. But I wasn't really, like, serious about it. It was kind of like this is a neat thing and it's neat from the sense of like we have this permissionless open way to synchronize information Uh, but I didn't really think about the ramifications of what it was you know engineers often miss the social kind of phenomenons we think about the tech from the tech's perspective Um, 
So, you know, I also remember the Ethereum ICO and kind of thinking, oh, this is like sadly JavaScript for this really cool thing. <laughs> and they could have used a much better virtual machine and better language. Again, totally missed the whole, you know, social impact of that. Uh, and uh, like what kind of a revolutionary accomplishment it was to, to get that working. Um, so yeah, just, just, I mean, I know a lot of people who kind of like yeah. miss, Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to synchronize talking when you're, yeah, uh, can't see each other, but, um, you know, I, I've, I know a total of people who actually came in for the social reasons and a ton of people who actually came in just for the purely technical reasons. And, um, if you're like looking for the perfect scalable, you know, fully decentralized system, like Bitcoin ain't it. Ethereum meaning. So yeah, I can understand why that'd be kind of a turnoff if you're highly technical and just interested in how transactional throughput, uh, you know, if you can meet the demands of, of uh, the users of the system, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the this whole idea that it could be a store of value just wasn't even on my radar yet either. And that, that's something that is almost obvious in retrospect to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's like an interesting thing that I, I missed completely. Um, so around 2017, I was in, in San Francisco and this big ICO boom happened. And uh, like literally I had too much coffee one day and I was up till 4 a.m. and I had this kind of this revelation. Oh man, I can add a source of time in this network that a trustless source of time, right? So without cheating, it's a source of time that doesn't rely on an external clock. It's purely this cryptographic process that generates some data. And I scoured the internet for anyone else working on this, and I couldn't really find anyone. Uh, and uh, you know, after conv convincing my family that that wasn't crazy, <laughs> I quit my job and like kind of started this project. So you actually got past the point of convincing your family you weren't crazy. That's that's interesting. Yeah, that alone yeah. is, a, is a feat of accomplishment. It, it took about a month. Uh, my wife's an engineer, so it took me like, okay, you got to listen to me. Out. <laughs> and then she was like, I think this will work. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's a bad sign. Well, let's 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 get down to that. That seems to be a, a key differentiator in what you're trying to build versus what a lot of other people are doing. You said a data structure that, I guess, encodes the passage of time. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So. Um, so a lot of folks have actually started working on, uh, have been working on this even at the time when I figured that, you know, had this revelation. Um, and it's called a verifiable delay function. And, oh, uh, yeah. Before that, there wasn't a lot of papers published on it, so I couldn't really find anything. Uh, but in 2018, a lot more papers started getting published. And what we're actually doing is, uh, I would call like a poor man's verifiable delay function. So the technical term is uh, you have a, some some mathematical process that takes certain amount some puzzle kind of like a proof of work puzzle that takes a certain amount of time to solve uh, but the proof is much much faster um, and we have the same property but um, the proof takes the same computational amount of power so if that makes sense so what, what we're doing is um, we're using this you know SHA-256 function the same function that Bitcoin uses and we're running it in a loop. So output is the next input. And you run this thing in a single core as fast as you can. And because it's this recursive you know, loop, you can't parallelize that process, right? So if I told you here's a bunch of samples of this thing running for an hour, um, you know that I spent somewhere some amount of time doing this. And maybe if I had a slightly faster 
single core may take like, you know, 45 minutes or slightly slower on an hour and a half, but you know that I actually spend real time to do it no matter how much money I have because I can't, you know, go buy a million cores and make it a million times faster. I can only really, you know, super cool and like get a really, really fast ASIC from ESMC and super cool it and that'll still give me about maybe two, three X speed up. Um, so because it's bound by the physical limits of electrons passing through this like single threaded, you know, single circuit. Um, but what we're doing to verify it is you take all the samples and on a modern GPU card, NVIDIA has been like super successful at, at scaling these things. Um, you have about 4,000 cores. So you sample this 4,000 times a second, you can verify a second and a quarter millisecond. So for, for all practical purposes, we have a kind of a, you know, practical VDF, which is very secure because it's based on chapter 56 and very cheap to verify if you have a modern um, processor available to you. Well, what do you mean by sample? Let in me, that case, on. I actually don't think I could. Let me, let me make a key differentiator here in terms of, um, sure. like when people think of proof, proof of work um, and the timing associated with block times, that is a statistical average of what uh, the amount of computation it should take to find something within a random sampling, right? And so yeah, like right. on average, a bunch across a bunch of different tries, you'll you'll converge to a, a, a given amount of time. So like, and what happens with a uh, proof of work is that you, you optimize the difficulty to go to a certain time limit. So every so many blocks, um, Bitcoin will re readjust the, the difficulty to just for 10 minutes of computation time based on how long it took to solve blocks. But in reality, you have, you have kind of a variation in this. So it, and you could end up solving a block way, way, way less than 10 minutes if you're lucky. And that's normal. That's just a part of the distribution. What you're talking about here is not that. It's not a statistical um, thing. It is literally, it takes this many times to run SHA given this much CPU power. And since we have a pretty good idea on what a single core processing power can be, you have a pretty good idea on how much computational work and time it's going to take to do it. That's right, correct? Correct, yeah. So I still don't idea. understand when you when you brought up the, the part about, um, you know, the the single like linear progression of the SHA-256 over and over again, we have an idea of, a, of how long that'll take, I, I get. What I didn't understand is apparently, you know, like we have GPU cores and there's like 4,000 cores on that, we can, or whatever they're called, um, and we can run like, I guess we're running that same function in parallel. Is that correct? So what is the, like, why, what does the word sample mean there? Like, what is the advantage to right. doing it that way? So it's, it's, so because SHA-256 is pre-image resistant, right? Just, you have no way to, to predict the output. That's why we can do the single threaded process and guarantee the time it's spent. But that also means that there's no way for us to verify it any faster than by just running it again. Um, so imagine you have the single core, right, single circuit running as fast as it can, and you simply record the number of times that has elapsed, like it's run the circuit a million times, two million times, and the current state. Um, so these samples you record as data. So now this data structure, right, let's say it's sampled, you know, a thousand times a second, you can take the start and end of every sample and run it in parallel on a different core. Oh. All the cores finish, right? And there's no errors. You have guaranteed that. That, that makes sense. You're checkpointing every as you run through this, exactly. this circuit. And yeah. then it, at each checkpoint, you have a start and a finish. And you can then parallelize that process as you go through. Yeah. 
So, so folks at VDF Research uh, that work with like Dampanet and a bunch of other researchers on this are building much more sophisticated approaches that use, you know, like 2048-bit square modular um, to, 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 to build a mathematical function that takes real time to generate, but faster than uh, polylog time to verify. So the speed up doesn't, the verification doesn't require this uh, GPU parallelization. But those, all those constructs right now have some very funky cryptographic trade-offs that are hard to deal with. Um, also, the hardware isn't ready yet. And um, from our perspective, we're not religious about our approach. You know, as soon as that hardware is ready, we'll switch it. Um, but shout to 56 and kind of me as an engineer, that's not a, you know, a BDF researcher. <laughs> I can, I understand this and it's very secure and it's very easy to work with because Intel and AMD both ship shout to 56 specific instructions. Yeah. So both can do a single round of SHA in 1.75 cycles. It's probably the most optimized function in the world right now, thanks to Bitcoin. <laughs> so we have a yeah. we have a pretty good idea of how fast this thing can get. And therefore for somebody to try to attack the network would require a much greater, you know, investment in resources than uh, something new. Well, to understand what those attacks would look like, I'd like to understand a little more about how it forms consensus using this clock. So you have this, what is essentially, and I don't even want to, it's kind of weird. Like, I assume every node's running this on their GPU. So they're all running the same thing, but they're not necessarily at the same time. In other words, they're not running the exact same thing at the same time. So it's got kind of like this asynchronous clock property. Is that kind of a weird thing to say, or does that make yeah. sense? And, and yeah. so how do you use that to form consensus? So what we do with this thing is a, uh, it, it, so that every, every validator in the network runs a single CPU core during this process. Um, and this SHA-256 process, what's interesting about it is if I take one of these samples and I write a message, right? I, I take a message, you know, I, use that sample in the message that's just a data and I sign it, that guarantees that that message was created after that um, sample was generated. Because SHA-256, I can't guess those numbers ahead of time, right? It's pre-image resistant as a script strong cryptographic property that the numbers are um, unpredictable. Um, so if I, if I reference it, it's as if I took the New York Times, I took a picture of myself with it, and now everybody knows that I was alive after that New York Times was published. Right. Does that make sense? All right. Yeah. I think but I, do you I, have to keep like a long record of these? these me, you only have to keep a record of the checkpoint, yeah. right? I want to. I want to. I want to try and rephrase what you just said in the way that I'm picturing in my head. Um, it's everyone who's participating in the network who wants to, I guess, I guess validators will receive a message, and they're running. They're basically all running the same VDF. They're all running a single CPU cycle of SHA-256. That's uh, and they're getting they're getting hashes out over time, and when they receive something and they would like to validate it, they then reference the current hash, which will always be a part of whatever gets submitted to like whatever canonicalized blockchain people are referencing later on down the line. Yep. Um, so, so, uh, so the part that uh, if I reference one of these hashes that guarantees that the message is created after that makes sense, right? Yeah. Okay, so imagine I take a bunch of these messages and hash them, and then 
I pen the hash into this process and I record that account 10 million. I had all these messages and I inserted them into my single thread, single CPU thing just by appending it to the current state and I recorded that, that thing, that event. Now this SHA-256 is now modified in this unpredictable way and that guarantees that all those messages were created before that modification occurred. Does that make sense? Yeah, so okay, so the so you actually in the end of the day, who actually gets to submit transactions to the blockchain? Is that is that because right now with proof of work, everyone's fighting to solve the yeah, giant Sudoku yeah. puzzle, and then they get to submit things, and then whatever they end up submitting ends up becoming all the transactions that they validated. Is that is it a similar situation where everyone's vying to win a game, and the winner of that game then gives you gives the rest of the community um, what messages get included in the next block? So, in like so back in like the early twentieth century, people figured out radios, and uh, what, what they observed is that if you and I are in the same frequency, we transmit at the same time, we get noise, mm -hmm. collision, right? So what they did is they gave everybody a clock. And they said, you transmit in a minute one, I transmit on every like even minute, and you transmit in every odd minute. And then we don't have collisions, right? And the number of participants can basically grow to how well our clocks can be synchronized. Um, so that's a very that's basically the foundation of scaling wireless networks. It's the first thing we do is we divide everything by time, and now they do much fancier things where they divide things by frequency and do this frequency hopping thing. But basically, like you have a common channel and you split it by time. And your common channel okay, but is the VDS. That's a problem because you've, yeah. you you can only have but so many like uh, chunks of time available to so many people trying to broadcast messages. So if I'm trying to submit a transaction, how would I do that in your network if the blocks of time are already kind of allocated? Do I have collisions? Is that a problem? Am I understanding something? So. Um, Basically, block producers are round robins and who gets to be the producer as fast as we can. And right now, that's 400 milliseconds. So every every 400 milliseconds, we have a new block. So when you're, as a, as a client of the network, you submit a transaction, it'll get encoded into a block, you know, fairly quickly. Basically, network delays. Uh, oh, okay. So there's a list of, of, so basically the leader is given this, so like in a, in a frequency spectrum kind of way of thinking about it, like I do, like yeah. this, this particular, you know, uh, uh, modulo of time is, 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 uh, is given to this particular uh, uh, validator, right? This, you know, um, yeah. and so the, the people who are participating in this network um, know who that is, uh, either in advance or by polling the network. Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, every, so you kind of know the sacrifice... schedule ahead of time. Good. Uh, so, is question? there is there a sacrifice for liveness because of that? Like, if that node goes down, like, what happens to the network? Um, so, here's the interesting thing: is that uh, because we have this VDF. What the next node does is simply submit a proof that they waited long enough to get to their block, right, to their slot, to their hash count. Um, and even if the previous node is down, there isn't really this classical timeout where everybody waits for messages and then times them out. Simply the whoever gets to submit their block first with the appropriate proof that they reach their re required height, that's the one that gets processed. 
And because everybody's staggered and delayed, right, if everybody's up and alive, then everybody goes according to schedule. But as soon as somebody's down, that next validator just, you know, skips skips them. Right, um, right. So what if somebody withholds their proof? I guess it wouldn't matter because then everybody in the network would have already advanced far enough. But what if yeah. that, due to network delays or anything, does, does that matter at all? Like this person did not get some, like, like all the messages that were, so it seems like you're sacrificing safety then instead. So I'm going to submit my message to, to uh, you know, my peer and my peer sees it and he's the current elected leader, whatever, he's going to be the one submitting the message. Does that go out to all the peers or like, how does that work? And do they, yeah, they so just... on, on top of this is like, you know, single sharded. So no sharding is our thing. We even have a podcast called No Sharding. It's a really fast <laughs> replicated state machine. So every 400 milliseconds, we produce a new block. If that leader is in there, the next one can simply provide a proof that they waited to, to get to the next block. And wh whatever data arrives first, um, validators vote on it, and the network continues moving. Um, so we don't sacrifice safety in the in like the long term. Um, what we have is asynchronous safety. So as blocks are produced, because they're produced so quickly, uh, individual validators don't really know if the rest of the network received them. Um, so they vote and then they observe the rest of the network voting and they continuously increase the commitment to safety. And that grows exponentially. But at the kind of at the tip of the chain, you have this um, maybe lowest commitment to safety that quickly becomes exponentially uh, gross to full. If, if that makes sense. I have yeah, a... no, I get it. Thank you. Um... I think the obvious question from there is who is the validator set and how does one enter and leave it? Um, so we're basically a proof of stake network. Um, so the validators are whoever has enough stake gets to be you know, scheduled in a stake weighted round robin. Um, so you simply write some transaction that say, hey, I want to be a validator. Here's some stake that's delegated to me. And the next step up, you get scheduled in. Um, and right now we're actually in this uh, with the network phase, basically the go-to-market launch phase. So we are working with a bunch of folks from the Cosmos community, some folks from like the EOS block producers. Um, Cosmos, I feel like, created this group of folks that are more like the professional validators. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's been really amazing working with them and kind of onboarding all of them. And we're doing dry runs. Uh, effectively, like we do dry runs until we can't crash the network, and then it's main nut, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, we're, we're we're following their model. Um, so our version of Game of Stakes is called Tour to Soul. We're you know a bunch of the folks are cycling nerds, and uh, part of it is stress testing the network and trying to demonstrate this is a this is the main nut. Same hardware, same people that run main nut. You know, totally permissionless, decentralized, but can't do this. You know, 400 millisecond blocks, 50,000 TPS is our target. We'll see if we hit it. Um, and that should be a fast blockchain that will never have $70 per transaction fees. What what can you do on it? You have this you have this linked list of of as of right now ambiguous transactions. What what can you do with a transaction? Like, can you make smart contracts? Yeah. You interact with smart contracts. How does the state grow um, with respect to that type of stuff? Yeah. So we are. Um, so my background is like operating systems, 
actually worked on uh, the SOAS called Brew, which ran like every flip phone out there. He had a CDMA like Motorola Razor. I was a core kernel engineer in this thing. And a bunch of the team is actually from that project. Um, and we're like operating system virtual machine nerds. Um, so our smart contracts language or bytecode is this bytecode that's in the, the part of the Linux kernel, I think for almost a decade now, called Berkeley Packet Filter. It's designed for high performance um, packet filtering, but it's now, it has now been used for um, kind of more general purpose secure bytecode. Um, so this thing in a single like single machine can process 60 million packets per second on a 40 gigabit network connection. Um, it, it's designed for really, really, really fast like processing, right? And and this is running. Uh, there's even like implementations of this running on hardware. Um, so anything that you can compile through LLVM, we can execute. And uh, we are using Rust and C as a as a as programming languages, like native ones, but we just ported the Move VM. And uh, kind of our vision for this is that uh, we can enable a bunch of virtual machines. You know, like we're looking at adding a, a, the Sputnik VM, which is a really nice, clean Rust implementation of EVM. Uh, but also stuff like Sapling, I think it would be really cool to, to run uh, the Zcash uh, virtual machine alongside as well. Um, so from, from our perspective, we kind of have this, you know, really, really fast base layer that does, you know, consensus and low latency blocks. And you can program it in this um, bytecode that's designed to be fast. And what you run in that bytecode is up to you. And if you want to use a higher level language like EVM, which will, you know, take more instructions to execute than C or Rust, um, you can do so. Yeah, I've seen it looking at your website. It says like basically like um, the way you do this is layer, layer one is this kind of stream of blocks done in the way in which you just said with the verifiable delay function, and you just build layers on top of that. So you're decoupling the transaction or the or the virtual machines from the consensus layer. Is that right? Yeah, and there's there's like I mean there's definitely trade-offs there, right? So I I think the folks that are working on making massively sharded systems are solving a, a really difficult computer science problem. And their goal is to have, you know, the smallest amount of computer power to add resources into this, you know, mesh of network, you know, the, this like mesh of computers. Uh, for us, we're dependent on these more professional validators to run validators that are um, like, you know, have more hardware. So almost like, you know, the way I think of it is like we have a you know, we're bootstrapping the next internet with a bunch of homegrown ISPs. So people that know, like, attack a little bit, but want to nerd out about it and can kind of go boot this thing at their local co-location space and uh, hook up a bunch of GPUs for signature verification and a bunch of SSDs for storage uh, and make this thing really fast. But it's still totally open and permissionless, so people can enter, you know, at any time. So this is something that, that kind of is a problem that I know of with VDFs, and I'm, I'm, I really want to hear you comment on it. And I think that it sounds like your network, just from what you're telling me, it sounds like it might still actually suffer from this. And it's kind of like the keeping up with the Joneses problem, aka the state infiltrator problem. Like we have, you, so you mentioned earlier, you'd have to dump in a ton of computing power to like outpace the network, right? But eventually like your validators need to kind of like upgrade their stuff. And 
um, it seems to me like uh, you really do require a heavy amount of like metal just to make sure that the, the system is kind of secure. Like you're not going to be running this on a Raspberry Pi, it sounds like. Um, well, so, so, the, so single core speeds have been flatlined for a long time. So in terms of the VDF itself, um, it's it's going to be pretty tough for you to get two, three X speed up, like a, like a large investment. Then you'd need like liquid nitrogen cooling and stuff like that. Um, beyond that, you'd have to spend a big pile of money to tape out a, a whole new chip at TSMC at, at their latest fabrication process. Uh, and even then, you might only get, again, another 2-3x. Um, and 2-3x is not enough to, to make a not. difference in, in the system? No, okay, and we're, at the limit. we're at the physical limits of increasing, like having these, these threshold steps of... Um, architectural changes within, within cores like this, like it's not gonna, like we're not, we're not gonna go any further after that. So, but, but what's interesting is that um, the number of actual, you know, what, what I remember is think these things being called as non-uniform memory, right? Numa cores is growing because you can just slap more cores and it's vapor that have no data dependencies, uh, and this is what Nvidia does with the their, you know, CUDA cores are basically, you know, they just print way more stuff in a single wafer every year, and that doubles every every two years. In fact, um, so when we started, we needed four 1080 Ti's to process a million signatures per second. Right now, one 2080 Ti can do a whole million. Um, so from my perspective, our, like, what, what's actually happening is we have, you know, the amount of parallel computational power is gonna keep doubling because you know, just the silicon wafers are going to get bigger, so they can just put more stuff on them. And uh, the process is still shrinking, so things will get slightly faster and slightly, you know, more dense. But just the amount of silicon that can ship is going to continue growing. Um, so, but validators... so I see what you're saying. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I thought you were done. I apologize. Um, the thing that kind of also kind of is this assuming a computational like paradigm that I don't think is necessary. For instance, like there are there's research into like chips that are light based. You know what I mean? Like they're 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 using uh, photo photons as their method of of transferring uh, data. Um, and I'm not like I'm not saying that that those are anywhere near where we are. But don't don't you think by depending your architecture on uh, our inability to innovate on one particular computing paradigm or one medium of doing compute is kind of um, not long-term safe? Um, I mean, that's hard to predict, right? If quantum computing does something unexpected in, in 20 years, but I think, you know, for the next 20 years, I imagine the amount of compute in each validator is going to double, right? So the cost of doing, you know, 50 TPS, 50,000 TPS is going to shrink by half, right? So, and our capacity should double, right? So the goal for this is like, for us to build a network that if you have this enormous spike in usage that it can just handle it. Yeah, I mean, also like you gotta put this into perspective of the, the community you're serving, like these networks are networks, right? They're, they. If, if, if what you're doing serves the use cases that are built on top of it sufficiently, then good. Okay, fine. The only problem with um, 
potential new paradigms in compute, which I don't think we really have to worry about hitting the limits, like catching up to the limits we currently have with silicon silicon wafers, um, is what they can say about consensus or whether or not they can take over like the, the, the security assumptions of the base layer. And so, that doesn't seem to be the case. Like imagine if we had like neutrino based communication and everybody in the world could be super connected to everyone else. That's consensus salt. We don't need any. <laughs> we don't need anything else, right? Yeah. But the, that's you know probably a thousand years away. <laughs> so what are you? Like, where are you? Like what's what's going on now? Where do you expect to go over the next over the next year? Like. So we're like we're gonna launch, and that, that's pretty scary. That means that the <laughs> protocol will be <laughs> will be running. And there'll be value to the underlying resource that governs, like the signal resistance, right? That this, you know, computer. And if we screw up, then a value might be destroyed, right? Um, that that's scary. Just as an engineer, you're always thinking about where where can things fail. <laughs> and uh, building a a network from scratch uh, over the last year it means you know you're going as fast as you can. Um, and you're, I'm always like concerned about security. And like, did we forget something? Did we not think of something? You know, like, um, that, that's, that to me is like the, the biggest worry. But where do you go? Like, how, how do you, what do you do to, to allow you to sleep at night? What steps do you take to try and give you stronger confidence that what you've done is at least sufficient for the, for the community you're serving and you're have things or processes put in place so that, um, if something does exist, it should eventually show up by by the happy path and not the bad one. Yeah. So, I mean, like, we're like, you know, good engineers. We do like separation of function and like any kind of cryptographic operations use their own separate keys. And we try to do like kind of the limit the privilege of everything, you know, to them uh, as much as we can. We're also doing a phased rollout. So, initially, we'll, we're probably going to launch with just staking and consensus working. We can observe that. You know, it's out in the wild and it can't do much, but it's at least consistent and <laughs> and nothing is falling over unexpectedly and then turn on transfers and then turn on the contract extension. So that those are like the responsible engineering things to do. Uh, but, you know, there's always something nagging in the back of my mind. We're always obviously like, we're also doing a, an audit with a reputable security firm. Um, but like, you know, like people have been working on Firefox and Chrome for decades, and there's zero days found there every you know, every month or two. So uh, you brought up, well, now you brought up two things because I want to hear about your upgrade path and like how will that affect things if you need 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 one. But uh, before we get to that, I'm actually kind of curious about your staking. Um, uh, what is the model you have for uh, validators in the network to stake? Is there slashing conditions? How do they join? What is their lockup period? What is the what is the staking incentive? Um, so we have a cool down and a warm up period for stakes. Um, it's about two two weeks, um, and the incentives are global inflation. So as a validator, you, you join, you create a you know your, a contract that participates in consensus is what defines a validator, and then users who have stake can uh, delegate their stake to you. Um, and if your votes are violate, you know you double vote or produce two blocks, you know, when you're only uh, for the same slot, um, you can get slashed. 
And initially, our slashing is pretty lightweight. It's like one to five percent. Um, there's no lightness slashing or anything like that. But eventually, the goal is to have a hundred percent slashing, right? Because slashing is really what defines the security of the network. Um, but to get there, you know, we need to have a kind of a soak time for for the software and for the operations for validators. Initially, you have to assume that. Sorry, go. Ahead. So why is slashing so essential to the security of the network? I mean, do you actually need to slash or can you just say we just for that for that particular period, you're just not going to get what you were going to get? Like, uh, you know, you have to be honest if you're going to get your, your stuff. If we find that you're not, then you're kicked out of the validator pool. So honestly, like uh, one of the worst punishments you can do to validators is force their clients to redelegate. Right, uh, because that means I have to go reach out to everybody again and, be, and tell them go run this command or run, you know, run the software and uh, restate. Uh, and that's pretty tough, right? That requires human, human time frames and uh, communication. Um, but slashing is ultimately like what's at stake, the capital at risk that defines the security of the network. And if you don't have anything at risk, then the security is very weak. And that's true about everything, Bitcoin included. Um, you know, if the difficulty is low, then would you trust a billion dollar? Like, I don't know if you guys noticed, there was a recent yeah. set of transactions that put a billion dollars into one account. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it, that's definitely like that's the security of of Bitcoin and proof of work is the total capital put up front to try and mine. Um, yeah. These things, which then gets you know embedded into the recreation of these blocks, if someone wanted to reproduce them. Uh, but I, I'm I'm curious. Okay, I think I the slapping thing. Hold on, I gotta I gotta respond to that one. Go I'm sorry, Corey. I think that's actually has more to do with the number of validators in the network and the fact that you have basically a leader election system. So. You know, if you have this sort of like, it's not leader election technically in a classical sense, but it's like you've allocated this particular frequency, let's ban, I don't know what to exactly call it, to a specific, this clock range, this clock, yeah. you know, um, time to a particular validator, um, you know, they can cause havoc in that particular period if they're Byzantine. Um, but if you have, because, you know, with different mechanisms for uh, for for consensus, you don't necessarily need to have that sort of like leader um, necessarily uh, to do all the you know transactional ordering essentially. Um, so um, and the commitment. So that's because of the way that you did the or the, it's inherent to the protocol that you need slashing because you have one person making a decision at any given time. So I I think so. There's a couple protocols that are not proof of work that don't have slashing, like Algorand, and I think. Avalanche, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and I uh, honestly think that it's a mistake <laughs> because imagine like shots the, fired. With, yeah, with, with proof of work. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I got to exactly yeah. where I wanted to go with this yeah. one. Full disclosure: <laughs> yeah. I work at yeah. Avalabs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I I think that's um, it, it's a interesting choice to make, and it's a controversial one, and it's awesome that people are exploring that. Um, just from the way I think of it is this $1 billion transaction, that uh, $1 billion account in Bitcoin. Right now, if somebody published a private key for this, they could basically stall Bitcoin for, I don't know, 100 days. Because that's the amount of inflation like from block rewards that you would need to add up to a billion dollars. But miners are not, are not really 
picking the heaviest fork. They're picking the fork that gives them the most money, <laughs> right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're intrinsically greedy. They're self-serving. Right. So if you have a protocol without slashing, imagine a trillion dollars of volume flowing through it. And that's less than 1% of the gross payment volume in the world. So well, that's one of the, that's one of the, like the key differences between proof of work and proof of stake is if you have to, if you have to um, stake a resource that is external to the system, then you can never do slashing. And that's how proof of work systems work is you're up, you're up, you're putting up front an external resource at the chance of, of, uh, of being a block producer, which then allows you to give a real world value upon the, the assets that are created based on that stake. With proof of stake, you have the ability to slash because you're putting up an, an internal resource, namely the token on the, on the thing. Um, but then where do you get the, where do you get the kind of maybe, uh, idea of what the value is? Uh, right. that resource. So, so with proof of work, the, I think the volume capacity of the network, I think is obvious at least to be at least the inflation reward, right? If it, if it can generate $12 million a day in inflation reward, then $12 million of volume, this, this thing can probably handle maybe a little more, right? But kind of intuitively that, that makes sense. But if you have a trillion dollars of volume a year going through a network, how do you secure it? Like, you know, at Algorand, right? Like I bribe a bunch of, you know, BGP router engineers. I get a bunch of nodes on there, create a partition and I create two blocks. And then I also short Algo at the same time. And, yeah. the, companies yeah. that are, and the companies that are dependent on the trillion dollars worth of payments volume. Right I just want to point out there that I mean I I, I have to defend the honor of, <laughs> but I, I don't think I think I think I think we're the, the 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 real cause of that issue has nothing to do with the like the fact that you need that you need slashing conditions is more inherent to situations where you you basically have deciders a group of uh, you know either a group of them or a uh, or a single decider that's kind of either elected or they mine it or something like that mm, these kind of situations i mean even with validators like they're just validating like if 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 it feels to me like when people are able to make decisions on their own then you need to be able to slash them but if they don't have to make any decisions really they just have to say this is what i know and the world kind of comes to consensus around that, then you don't need to, 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 to penalize them for saying something wrong. You just need them to get in line with the final state. Um, and so that's, in that case, you're just on a purely incentive-based model instead of like a penalty model. And I think that, that I, think, I think keeping an open mind, I just wanna, I, I have to be careful because I don't wanna be like a shill for like the company I work for, but like, <laughs> I think there's something to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I think that, so for us, it doesn't even make sense to slash you in the, in the very, like, in, in making mistakes at the tip of the, of the spear, right, at the, at the front of the ledger, because there, like, the network is not settled yet, and it doesn't really matter if you misvote or produce a block. So you can actually, like, it's just way more work to construct a state machine to allow for not slashing there, but slashing later on if you're trying to be malicious and trying to trick an exchange, right, and accept a bunch of fake money through, through a partition. Because obviously the time frames are much longer and then you're creating a much longer fork. Uh, so that, those kind of separating those in, in terms of like, what are the actual attack vectors and, you know, 
who's executing them, um, I think is a security analysis that needs to be made. Um, On top of that, um, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm kind of curious, once you had, like, you, you said, like, the stake is your security um, yeah. and distribution of that, of the coin has a lot to do with who has, like, who, who's put up the amount associated, uh, forget all that. You have one security model associated with um, how much stake validators have. I'm kind of curious about like the real world um, physical needs associated with being a validator. It seems to be relatively expensive. If I would like to be a validator, and I no longer have to, I not only have to put up a substantial amount of money, which I'm willing to lose if I if I misbehave, but also I need a substantial amount of physical hardware in order to keep up with the network. Is that true? Um, so the hardware is actually fairly cheap because of NVIDIA. Um, a single 2080 Ti is 700, you know, 1200 bucks. Can process a million up to 55, 19 signatures per second. Your modern day PCI 4, like, you know, can do like, I think a terabit of bandwidth. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of hardware in, in like a machine that's sub $5,000 and that's kind of recommended setup. Um, so it is more of an investment than when people run demos and they run something in a Raspberry Pi or a laptop. But I think the reality is that we kind of have this professional set of validators that are coming up through Cosmos and kind of the block producers from other, from other networks, but also like the people that are hobbyist miners, they typically run, you know, a rack of GPUs, right. And they have a fast connection because they want their blocks to be, you know, propagated at a decent rate. Um, so there's actually quite a bit of folks that are in the space that are already way, way, way more than qualified to run a validator. Um, and on top of that, like, say you have the validator set set up and they, and the, and the creation of the blockchain is done in a, in a, in a safe way. What about people who just want to use the network and run nodes that gather information? What type of hardware would they need? Is it just a simple like Raspberry Pi, a mobile phone? Did they need a PC? Did they need to rely on someone else to give them data and hope that they do a good job of it? Um, so like most, um, like kind of the common approach to this stuff is using uh, light clients. Yeah. So you generate a proof of an event that occurred on chain. Uh, and that's really like the foundation to like inner blockchain communication. And that, that's basically what we're building as well. So between networks themselves or between you know, people that are just like wallets that are using a wallet, they don't need to run a, a full validator. They can simply um, get proof that the network is doing the right thing or somebody should be slashed. So um, what about upgrades to the network? Um, uh, so is there any advantage to like a new GPU coming out, for instance? Um, so this, there's a hardware upgrade side of things. Like, do they have to keep up with the Joneses if they're a, a professional validator on this network? Um, NVIDIA comes out with an architecture that still has parallelization, but they're able to do a tremendous amount more. It sounds like it just benefits the network because you could run more checks. Is that correct? Here's, here's the interesting thing. Like, people can deploy on the cheapest hardware that can run the network. So if there's, but we can price transactions based on the most optimal capacity of the protocol. So imagine, you know, we did a really good job of software engineers and we can actually handle 40 gigabit 
per second network. Take a big pile of work, right? <laughs> Not going to happen this year, yeah. maybe in five years, right? If we just had, had the time uh, to do it. Uh, that means that we can price the transactions as if we're handling 20 million transactions per second. Because as soon as there's demand for that, it's ridiculously easy to scale up your hardware. You just, you know, type in a bunch of commands and all of a sudden you have a data center and uh, whatever, you know, cloud provider you want. Um, and if that capacity sustained, then you go invest in racks, right? Or a co-location space or whatever. So, but that's like in this like extreme use case that all of a sudden we are the financial fabric of the world and we're handling, you know, 20 million transactions per second, which <laughs> would be insane, right? Um, so the network only needs to keep up with demand, but we can set the price based on the capacity of what can be achieved, right, with available hardware. Because do you want to do that, as... though? Because that seems as though, yeah. like, I'd imagine the incentive for validation is going to be based on transaction fees. If Oh, no, as you said, it's inflation schedule, right? Yeah. I, I Like, I, I'm not sure if transaction fees are long-term sustainable model for any network. Um, so it's only a, spam, a, for, a form of spam protection versus um, yeah. actual incentivization scheme. It, it is It is definitely an incentivization scheme if we're at capacity. Because then let's say they get you know, you know, 50 to 100% margin, which is totally fine. At like those 20 million numbers, you're, the network is making billions a year, right? But, it's justified because of those numbers, it's doing something crazy, right? It's, it's handling a lot of financial transactions. Um, I, I don't know if, if transaction fees in, in the road can do it because if you have a bunch of low volume networks that are handling, you know, billion dollar transaction on Bitcoin, how, how are the validators only earning, you know, 60 cents or whatever <laughs> for that billion for securing a billion dollars worth of assets so to me like there's this misalignment of incentives that uh will need to be corrected and i'm not 100 percent sure how that will um actually resolve itself but that's that's not a problem that's unique to us even i think that's apparent in bitcoin as well well the next like i think, like, I think yeah. the next way to like on, on, to to move into somewhat of a different subject that's tangentially related um, none of this matters if no one uses Solana, right? We have a lot yeah, of, yeah, we, have, of we have so many different projects trying different schemes to like find the thing that's going to scale to what needs to be scaled to allow for people to use it like, basically like as a universal chain across across these things. What, what's your goal in um, like the community would like to use Solana and then how do you get people to come and join you build on top of it to create the value you're trying to get? So I'm like, you know, insanely bullish on the space. Like, I think we have this like huge opportunity to um, just get rid of ads <laughs> from like everything that we do. <laughs> if we could just and, do that, that's plenty and it's going to sustain yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, like, um, if you look at like how much revenue financials like payments processors make, it's two trillion dollars a year in revenue. Like the entire Google, Facebook ads ecosystem makes um, like one fourth of that, so five hundred billion. So there's a lot more money in the payments processing side, and if we can start building 
silly things like you know reddit or karma is a token and you can like pay each other for memes right like or search engine where like instead of ads you're micropaying for the stuff you read and it becomes fast and flawless and um like kind of transparent to you i think we can start building products that are these you know have massive numbers of users that are self-sustaining without stealing your data um, so to me, that that's like a enormous opportunity for this like kind of next phase of the internet. Um, and again, like I was a like a teenager in the '90s, and I saw the kind of this hockey stick of the internet. We had I think 40 million users on the internet globally in '96, and that's about how many wallets there are right now. And um, I think only 100,000 wallets have uh, more than um, 0.1 Bitcoin. So it's a pretty small market right now, it, but if it doubles, right? If it actually doubles every year, um, when we hit those like two, three hundred million number of self-custody wallets out there, you'll start seeing like homegrown crypto-only like phenomenons happening, like the friendsters of crypto. Like I don't know if you remember the friendster, right? Like yeah. I had yes. like, six de- my six degrees of friends. Like it was like the coolest thing, and I had. They had a scaling problem for a computer science problem. They had to recompute this graph every time somebody joined. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that about them. That's interesting. And it's funny you brought up the wallet to the to the internet use, uh, account owner from the ni- from nineties. I mean, I remember those days, and because uh, I also was a teenager in those days. Uh, and I would say that the biggest leap forward for the internet was, you know. While we did need improved technology, better browsers, et cetera, et cetera, and it all kind of started to come together, the uh, the biggest leap was the infrastructure. You know, mm-hmm. broadband. Um, once broadband started getting adopted, and the and people were using their cable wires, the little copper wires through the house, they were already using to watch you know their favorite TV shows to also browse the internet at a whopping two megabits per sec per second. Um, you know, from up from the fifty six k they were doing before. Uh, suddenly things like YouTube became possible, you know, and uh, that's when things started getting interesting um, in my mind. And that didn't happen until uh, early 2000s. And then I think YouTube appeared, uh, what, 2005? Um, is that right? Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, point is, is that like it, it was it's an infrastructure play right now. Um, that's my feeling towards the world. And uh, you are in the right direction. So uh, congratulations for building stuff. And um, thank you very much for uh, coming on and talking with us about it. Yeah, for sure. This was super fun. How do people learn more? How do they, how do they get in contact with yeah. you and so on and so forth? Um, so go to Solano.com. Um, there's a Discord group where all the engineers hang out. We have a Telegram channel, you know, podcast, no sharding podcast. Um, so please check all those. Yeah, please check all those things out. <laughs> we actually, I, we have like the near protocol guys on it. Um, they're awesome. So sharding is a lot of work, but we you don't need it for scale. We need it for other things, but um, it's, it's not a requirement to scale. All right. Cool. Thanks for coming on. Cool. Awesome. Cool.